Okay, we are reading in the book of Acts where we left off last week. We're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And we're going to start reading from verse 32. Now Peter was traveling through all those regions and he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And it's interesting, this word saints... um, I don't know, how does, how does your, uh, how does the NIV translate that word? Does it say saints? It does, okay. You know, this is, they're just beginning now to use the word saints in the scriptures um, uh, at this point. And, and this is going to be commonly used. And also the word brethren starts being commonly used in the scriptures at this point. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived in in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So you see, Peter is carrying out the very same kind of works that Jesus did. Healing people who had been paralyzed. He tells them to get up and make his bed. And now in verse 36... Now in in Joppa, there was a disciple there named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, saying, Do not delay. In coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him down to the upper, they brought him into the upper room. And all the windows, all all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And when she opened her eyes, And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and the widows, he presented her her alive. It became known to all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So again, this is the same sort of way that Jesus dealt when he was presented with a dead body that had been dead for some time. There was an upper room and and he came and he actually put everyone else out except the girl's parents and Peter and and James and John were there. And the others he put out of the room and he spoke to her to arise. Now Peter does the very same thing. You see Peter now fulfilling the same things that Jesus fulfilled. The same sort of ministry. And and look at the response of the widows. When... when, uh, when Peter comes in, it says, The widow stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. And so you see that this was a woman of service, a woman who served in the body of Christ. And there was an affection toward her because of this service in the body of Christ. The good works that are done remain. And the, even after we're gone, these good works remain. So the good works that are done often remain, and we're just going to touch on that 
a bit more today. But this verse in verse 43, it says, Peter stayed in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And to stay with a tanner was actually considered not really proper because a tanner had to touch dead bodies, dead hides all day, uh, dead animals all day. And in fact, they were considered unclean based in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, Peter was staying at his house. So already the words that had been spoken by Jesus started to have an effect on Peter. But now we're going we're gonna to begin to see that all the more where, Jesus, where Peter's, this is going to happen all the more to Peter. But first of all, we switch scenes now to a man named uh, Cornelius, who is a centurion. So Cornelius is not a Jew, and God is about to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And this was prophesied in the Old Testament that it would happen, and now salvation is coming through the Jews to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, now there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and he prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to to Joppa and send for the man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier and those who were his personal, of those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so, there's this man, Cornelius, he's a centurion. Remember, every time a centurion is spoken about in the Bible, it's spoken in a positive light. Here's a centurion, and it says that he was of the Italian cohort. It says he was a devout man and one who feared God. So, as we've seen with other centurions, and as we've seen in other cases with Gentiles, there were people that feared the God of Israel but were still Gentiles. They had not converted, but there was a fear of the God of Israel. And he was a devout man, it says. He and his household. So there was an effect that he had upon his household. In my experience, when a man comes to know the Lord, he can very often bring his wife and his children along with him into that knowledge of the Lord. When a woman comes to know the Lord, it's often much harder for them to bring their husband along. But this man brought his whole household along with him in this fear of the God of Israel. And it says he gave many alms to the Jewish people. This word Jewish actually is italicized in my scripture, so it's really not there. And and the, the NIV, I don't think, stresses that word. But he gave many alms to the people and prayed to God continually. And it says, and about the ninth hour... He clearly saw in a vision. So the ninth hour was 3 p.m. So 3 p.m. was a Jewish prayer time. They would pray at noon and they would pray again at 3 p.m. So he observed a fixed prayer time. He observed something that to Jews was very important, was to have this 3 p.m. prayer time. It is not a wrong practice to have a, a fixed prayer time. It is a wrong practice to take my fixed prayer time, and to project that upon you. That's legalism. 
But it is not at all a wrong practice for us to put upon ourselves a fixed time with the Lord. My experience, my experience in dealing with believers over 30 years of knowing the Lord is that those who have a fixed time with Him in the mornings usually go much deeper. If you will take a time that you set aside that this is my time to spend with God, you will go much deeper with the Lord. This man had a prayer time that happened to coincide with the tradition of that day, this Jewish prayer time. He had something that he put upon himself. He didn't have to do it. If I project my times on you, that's probably wrong. You choose the time that's the best hour of your day for thinking. For me, I'm a morning person. That is the best hour of my day. For some people, the mornings, they have no conception of what's going on. Their their minds are separate from their bodies. You choose what is the best time, and you give that time to the Lord. Once you've chosen that, you give that time to the Lord, and He will greatly bless you in that. And you use that as your time to spend time with the Lord. So Cornelius was, was with the Lord, and he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God. So this wasn't some ethereal thing, well, I think he's here. Is that an angel? I mean, very clearly. And he was frightened, and I think any of us would be frightened. Because I don't know exactly how angels look. But if they're anything, you know, they're, they're probably not like, like Cupid, you know, this, this little pudgy baby with wings. Because when they're described in the scriptures, they're actually described quite differently. And did you know in the scriptures there, there is not a single female angel ever mentioned? All angels are male. And it talks about their shining armor, it talks about their shining sword, and it talks about how every time that they've come before people, the people were afraid, no matter how godly they were. So they're terrifying looking beings. I guess if we saw them every day, you know, we we feel a lot more comfortable with them. But we don't normally see them. And, and, uh, uh, And I've never seen an angel. Although the scriptures talk about how all of us have a guardian angel. And how, it, it, you know, many references to this. How the scriptures say, don't, don't slander a poor man, or his angel may cry out before God on his behalf, and God will come after you. So, you, you know, there are, peop- there are angels that, that watch over us, we are told, but we don't normally see them. He saw this angel in a vision, and the angel came and said to him, Cornelius, addressed him by name, and, he, and fixing his gaze on him, he was much alarmed, and he said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. What is a memorial? That means that it is before God and it is ever before God. You set up a memorial and you can can go to Washington, D.C. and see these memorials. And I went and saw these when, when I was about, I don't know, eight or nine years old. My family took a a, a trip to Washington, D.C. And then I've gone back with my own children, and I'm showing my own children the very same memorials, the same ones that I saw they are now seeing. This memorial is before God. The alms that you give, the gifts that you give, remain before God. The Bible says, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. 
And the only way that can occur, that my left hand doesn't know what my right hand is doing, is that I'm doing it so much, I've lost track. God doesn't lose track. Every one of those gifts is before God. And it remains there forever regarding this person. Every prayer, it says your prayers are there as a memorial before God. I have prayed so many prayers that I don't even remember. And God remembers it because it's there every before Him as a memorial before God. The alms and the prayers remain as memorials before God. What I want to look at first is the deeds of generosity, deeds of generosity that we do toward others. We are to be generous, and there are many New Testament commandments on this. And, and uh, look in Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter nine. And it is so much fun for me to be able to talk about this because I'm not the pastor of a church and I take no salary from the church. I get no money from the church. And so I can talk about this without you feeling like I'm asking you for money. I don't want your money and I've never accepted a nickel for any speaking engagement that had to do with the body of Christ. You know, there's been times, you know, once I, I spoke on campus and Shireen came with me and, and there was this little Christian group that invited us on campus. And after I spoke, they passed a hat and, you know, people were putting in change and it was like $5 and they gave it to me. They said, I'm not going to take this. I've never taken any money from anyone for preaching the gospel because I'm not a full-time minister. I get a salary from the university and they pay me quite nicely. And I don't need to take the Lord's money. This is, I say, go and support the full-time workers. So I'm not asking for your money, but let me show you what the Scripture commands all of us to be doing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, from verse 1. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boasted about to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good need. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every Everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Okay, so you see that he is encouraging them to give. And he says, I'm sending people ahead to prepare your hearts, lest it's affected by your covetousness, which means your greediness. Because all of us have greediness within our own hearts. 
and we want to hold back. And he says, there is no degree here. He says that, he says that uh, um, each one must do as he's purposed in his own heart. Tithing, tithing is only in the Old Testament. It is not in the New Testament. You do not see it in the New Testament. Actually, in the New Testament, when it talks about quantity of giving, it gives examples where people gave everything, not just 10%, but everything they had. But tithing is not a bad place to start. Tithing is like the baby place. That is the starting place. That is the place that you start. You know, I read something by Brother Andrew that really impacted my life. He was talking about how they were living on faith and there were two groups, of, uh, two groups with the same organization. And, and when people would bless their ministry, they would always take 10% of that and give it out. But the other group would set the 10% aside and, and say, we'll give it when we get back, when we get done, just in case there's an emergency. And they always had emergencies, whereas this group never had emergencies and never ran out. He says, I want you to be ready to do this. And what's going to happen is, when you do it, God is going to increase it and enrich you in every way. In other words, He's going to then replace it and give you back enough to do good deeds in every respect. In verse 10, now he who supplies supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So in other words, he will multiply it. This is the context of this passage. It is monetary gift in this passage. If you look in Luke chapter 6, it talks about uh, 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 if you give, you will receive back overflowing. It will be overflowing into your lap. The context of that is often used for giving money. That is not the context of Luke 6. Not that it won't work for giving money, but it's not the context of Luke 6. Luke 6 is the giving of blessing versus the giving of cursing. The giving of forgiveness, the giving of mercy. You will receive back many times over. This context is the giving of money. And God said, sent an angel to say to Cornelius, the alms that you have given have risen before God. And you say, well, when I get done with school, then I'll give 10%. You won't. You lie. Because you'll become more selfish. The more money you have, the more selfish you become. You say, how can that be? If I'm making a lot, it'll be a lot easier to give. I know from my own self, the more money I make, it's like, that 10% is a big number now. You know, before it only used to be $10. You know, that's a lot of money. And this is what happens. The more money you make, the harder it is to part from it. You say it should be just the opposite. Trust me. Trust me in this. It becomes harder the more you make. Rich people are not the biggest givers percentage-wise. It is the poor who are the biggest givers percentage-wise. You start now. Every dollar you get, give 10 cents away. Every dollar you get, give 10 cents away. And do it now. And do it quickly. Let something arise that keeps that 10 cents back. Do it quickly, as soon as you get it. Let that be the first check you write. Boom! That it goes out. And you will be greatly blessed and God will multiply it. The second thing I want to consider from this passage is the blessing toward the Jews. 
In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God said to Abraham, Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And the reference to that wasn't just Abraham, it was to his seed. Those who will come after you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Look in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. We're going to see an amazing contrast here. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. The Syrophoenician woman. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Jesus went from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. You know, that, now that's a pretty nice request. She says, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. So she acknowledges that this is the Messiah, the son of David. Have mercy on me. She doesn't come, you know, with her hands on her hip like, you owe me something. No, she's just falling on her face and saying, have mercy on me. My daughter is cruelly possessed. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. I mean, what's going on, Lord? Are you having a bad day today? What's happening? What kind of response is that from Jesus? Doesn't he love the little children? There's just this girl who's terribly demon-possessed. He says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I've only been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 27, but she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Jesus did end up healing her daughter. But look at Jesus' response to the non-Jew. Now, let's contrast that to Luke. Let's turn to Luke chapter 7. And look at the contrast here. Luke chapter 7. Reading from verse... uh, Verse 2. Luke chapter 7, verse 2. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of his slave. And they came to Jesus, and they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it is he who built us our synagogue. Okay, so look at the man here. He's a centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He's not a Jew. He loves the Jewish nation so much so that he built us our synagogue. He got all the paperwork done, got it through the the Italian government. He underwrote the thing and he built us our synagogue. Jesus didn't say, well, well, you know, I've only been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, I I I I don't use these sort of things for dogs. 
Look in verse 6. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And I'm a slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to him, and he, turned, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So Jesus equated the understanding of authority with faith. He understood authority. Jesus said, I've never found such great faith. When you understand authority, authority in the body of Christ, authority in, in your workplace, when you understand authority... And stop bucking authority and learning to bless authority and work with it. You will be greatly blessed. But the point here is that in verse 6, as soon as they say, He underwrote our synagogue. He loves our nation. He's taking care of us. Jesus said, I'm on my way. Because Jesus remembered the promise of His Father. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. This man had blessed the Jewish nation. Jesus said, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. God visited a man named Cornelius. It was his household among the Gentiles that was the first household. Because he loved the Jewish nation. You know, a, a, a Messianic Jewish group needed a place of fellowship. Because the place that they were fellowshipping was closing down. And they, they, uh, um, they had asked the church here... Could they meet at Cross Point? Because it, it was, would be a great area for them. And, and so remember, they have their services on Friday nights. Because Friday evening is the Sabbath. It starts. And so if you say, I always observe the Sabbath. Well, then don't work from Friday sundown till Saturday sundown. That's the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Never has been. Never will be. All right? So if you're emphatic about the Sabbath, it's Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. That's when they worship. And... And, uh, you, you know, there's many, many people that want to use the facilities for different things. And so this person, this, this pastor of the church, who I know very well, called me. And I immediately called Roger. And I said, Roger, there's a Messianic Jewish fellowship wants to use Crosspoint on Friday nights. Let me tell you something. I suggest we give it to them. And we bless them with it. Because those who bless them will be blessed. You want a blessing? The Jews have come to us. These are Messianic Jews, those who acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. They want this place. Let's give it to them and give it to them really good. Give them the best facilities we have there. Because there is great blessing. And I told Roger about this. I said, remember the centurion. Jesus said, I'm on my way. And Roger said, you're right. He right away called the guy. Said, Whatever you want, you got it. We will be greatly blessed because of that. When you hear talk about the Jews, the Jews this, the Jews that, don't participate in the talk. The Jews are not angels. They are not. But they are blessed because of a promise that God made to Abraham. Don't get on the bandwagon of picking on the Jews because they're Jews. You can pick on them because they do other things. But don't pick on them because they're Jewish. You know, if they, <clears throat> if they block your driveway every day, that's one issue. But don't pick on them because they're Jewish. Just stay out of the fray of that. Because there's lightning bolts about to be coming from heaven. And just stay away. And if you really want to be blessed, bless them. 
Bless them. I know men who give a tithe to their local church. Always. That is the first money they give. But right alongside that, they take another 1% and give it into Jewish ministries. Because they understand this passage. By Jewish ministries, I mean ministries that bless Jewish people. Ministries that are particularly, have particular outreaches to Jews or to Messianic groups that have particular outreaches to Jewish people. They'll take another 1% and boom, just give that to Messianic Jewish ministry because they understand what this verse means. Jesus said, He's blessed the Jewish people, let's go. Let's go. Even though He's not of the house of Israel, I remember a promise that my father made to Abraham. Let's take care of him. All right. Also, something we get from, from the angel saying, your alms and your prayers have risen as a memorial before God, is the indebtedness that we have toward those who serve us spiritually. The scriptures talk about our indebtedness to the Jews for retaining the scriptures. They have kept the scriptures for us all these years through great hardship and great persecution. And we have some debt to them. I also am terribly indebted to the church, to the body of Christ. As a Jew, I was born a Jew, I was raised a Jew, I will always be a Jew. But I never learned much about God from my Jewish heritage like I learned from the church. And I am indebted to the body of Christ for teaching me about God, for teaching me about the Messiah. And for the last 2,000 years, the church has preserved not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament for us through great persecution. And I owe them a debt. Look in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I feel this enormous debt to the body of Christ and those who ministered to me spiritually. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the work? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right, not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not eat the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about the oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our own sake? For, yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things into you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things, so that we will cause no hindrance of the gospel. Do you not know those who perform sacred service, eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly at the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So what Paul is saying is, I proclaim the gospel to you, Corinthians. I could well receive back from you materially. But I've never exercised that right. 
He says, I would rather work because I don't want to have any conflict with you folks because you're stingy to begin with. Because it is hard to accept something from a stingy person. And that's what he's telling them. And then he praises other churches for their generosity, for their taking care of him. But those who make their living from the gospel, those who preach, we owe them something. The men. There is a, a, a young man shared Christ with me as part of Navigator's Campus Ministry when I was 18. And because of that, I started t- attending a Bible study there in the dormitory. And a young man was teaching a Bible study named John Robinson. He taught me from the book of John. I wasn't even yet a believer. And I became a believer shortly after that, about a month after that. For the last 25 years, I have felt an obligation to support John Robinson because he's still in ministry. Because this man shared the gospel with me. I owe him something. I owe this man something. He shared the gospel with me. In fact, I owe him much more than I could ever bless him back with with money. I owe him my very life. Look in Philemon. Philemon is this very short book, one chapter, right before Hebrews. If you can find Hebrews, flip back to the beginning, you'll find Philemon right there. In Philemon, Paul is, is writing a letter asking that they let this, this slave Onesimus go. Onesimus came, ran away from his masters, who were Christians ran away from his masters, started ministering to Paul, and Paul writes back to his master and says, please let Onesimus go. You have every legal right to have this slave, Onesimus, but now he's become a believer, he's a brother. Please let him go. If anything is owed, take it out of my account. So look what he says in in Philemon, verse 17. If then you regard me a partner, accept accept, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. You see what he says? He says, you know, you got saved through my ministry. I ministered to you. You want to charge me something for Onesimus to let him go? You're welcome to do that and I'll pay. But just remember, you owe me your very own self. I owe to pastors, to churches, I owe them something for what they placed in my life. So when they ask me to do some sort of service, I don't say, yeah, sure, pay me for it. I've been asked by former people who have put stuff into my life to travel to India to speak. I don't like traveling. I know everybody in the world likes traveling except me. And I travel all the time. Even this afternoon, I have to leave town again. I travel all the time. And because I'm in airports all the time, the last thing I want to do on a day off is have to go to the airport again. And everybody loves traveling overseas. You're looking at the one person who doesn't. If I want to see something, I look on the Internet. And I'm quite satisfied. I was just in Prague. And and I was there for 36 hours. I flew in, I spoke, and I flew out. I did what I had to do. And Prague is a beautiful city, and I saw what I wanted to see in a few hours. That was it, and I was out again. I get back into Houston, I fly back in, and I go to immigration, and the guy looks at my passport, and he says, how long were you in Scotland? I said, oh, 36 hours, and he just shakes his head. This is who I am. But I went to India and spent six days in India ministering because I was asked by people who had invested something in my life to help them in this ministry. And I felt obliged to do it. There is another ministry called Aerial Ministries, which I love. 
And it's a ministry to, to Jews. And, and uh, they asked me to serve on their board. The last thing that I needed was to be on another board. I don't like board service. I don't think I'm particularly good at board service. And, and it means that I have to travel. I have to travel four times a year. So the last thing I wanted to do was travel again. And one of their travelings is, is, is they go out to this remote place in upstate New York, which is just south of, of, uh, just south of Canada. It's in the middle of nowhere. You, you take a flight to another flight and you fly into to an airport in, in uh, Vermont. And then you take a car to a boat and a boat across a lake. And then they pick you up in another car and you go through these, 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 these woods and you get to this place. And there's no internet. Nothing works there. The cell phone doesn't pick up. Nothing. And that's where they like to be. That's not where I like to be. My idea of camping is I, is I barbecue some steaks on the grill in the back and I eat and I go upstairs and take a shower and go to sleep. That's camping for me. But I do this because I owe them something. I owe them something. You owe something to somebody, to some ministry, to somebody who's placed something into your life. You owe them something in return. And that's what Paul is saying. There are people that invested in you spiritually. You owe them your very life. Don't charge them money for stuff. They ask you to do something. Yeah, well, you know, pay me for my service. What are you talking about? You owe them your very life. This is what he's saying. There's great blessing in this. And the last thing is, your prayers have risen as a memorial before God. Your prayers have risen as a memorial. In James it tells us, you do not receive because you do not ask. The vast majority of why we don't receive, people say, I never receive any prayers. Well, do you pray? Maybe if you prayed, you'd receive some answers. And these remain as a memorial before God. I've prayed so many things I forget. God hasn't forgotten They all stay there as a memorial. When I first got saved, I prayed for my mother all the time. I I don't know. This was my... Every prayer meeting, they asked for prayer. I want to pray for my mother. Every prayer meeting was for my mother. And, you know, it was like this this constant thing. You know, back back at the time, we used to say it was like a broken record. Now it's like a broken CD or a broken MP3. It just played over and over and over again. I I prayed for my mother. And the whole prayer meeting was praying for my mother. And the whole church was praying for my mother. And every prayer request was praying for my mother. Well, after a while, I got a lot more sophisticated. And I stopped praying for my mother all the time. And I stopped asking for my prayers for my mother all the time. And, I, and, it, and in my sophistication, you know, I was asking for, you know, you know the conversion of students and God saving, you know, the, the poor people and all these things. Well, 25 years later, after all those prayers were offered up, boom, my mother, at the age of 72, gets hit with the presence of Jesus and loves the Lord. Just loves God so much. And she's so excited about God and she starts calling me on the phone and telling me how, you know, Jesus has come into her life. And, and, and uh, you know, here's a 72-year-old Jewish woman. She calls me on the phone. She says, says, Jimmy, you'll never learn what I just learned. You'll never know what I just learned from the Bible. I said, what'd you read now? She says, it says that husbands should enjoy the wife of your youth. I said, yeah, well, tell that to Dad. She says, I did. And I said, well, what did he say? He says, I know all that already. <laughs> but she's just so excited about the Lord. All these prayers that I had offered up 25 years before were like a memorial before God, and God couldn't just 
have this huge memorial stacked up church after church praying for this woman without converting her. They stack up as a memorial before God. You pray. You commit that to the Lord. You pray and let it stack up as a memorial and make it a big memorial before God. Concerns you make it a huge memorial before God. He will not forget it. The angel said, all those prayers, all those alms, every nickel, every prayer you, you whispered is a memorial before God. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word that You call us into something much deeper. You call us into a place of freely giving and freely blessing. Father, may we do good deeds, giving freely of our money, of our time, for the service in the body of Christ. Father, may we bless those particularly who have ministered Christ in our lives, for we owe them something. We owe them our very self. And Father, may we remember to do good to the Jews, to bless them because of the promise to Abraham and because of the visible difference that your son demonstrated. Father, may we receive that blessing by blessing them. And Father, I pray that we would also remember to offer prayers, to pray and to see that built as a memorial before God. Father, thank you for your mercies that you never forget these things. You take our sins and you forget them. As far as the east is from the west, you cast them from you. But when it comes to alms and prayers, they remain forever as a memorial before you. Father, thank you for the way that you have partitioned these things. This is mercy and we thank you for it. Father, I pray for these young lives. The power of God be visited upon them to the extent that they obey your word. In the name of Jesus. Amen.